You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right then. What's up, man? (laughs) I'm glad you guys could all be here. I see some people that I've never seen here before, a couple people. My name's Dave. I'm the teaching pastor here. It's nice to see you. I see a couple people we haven't seen in a while. I'm glad you guys are here as well. Um, So if you don't know what we're doing... uh, This evening we'll be continuing our series called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous stories in the Old Testament and seeing how that they point us to Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Luke, and the author of Hebrews says the same thing, that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, and everything in it was just a type and shadow of the one who was to come. So Jesus is the fulfillment, he's the better version of everything that we see in the Old Testament, and it was all pointing to him. Um, So that being said... I want to level with you a little bit. Um, this, this sermon series has been the hardest one that I've ever done in three and a half years because, let's, let's face it, a lot of the times Christians, we tend to ignore the Old Testament um, and, and focus solely on the New Testament. And granted, we live by the New Testament, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture was given to us by God, inspired by God, breathed out by Him that we might learn from it. But we stupidly tend to neglect the Old Testament. So this has been a really hard one. Um, and, and this week, I, I honestly uh, found myself like on my face before God, begging Him to give me a sermon because I thought that I was going to stand up in front of you guys this evening and have literally nothing to say out of Exodus this evening. Uh, I was scared to death all week. Um, but that being said, uh, I did finally, thank God, get it written yesterday. Um, this has been probably the hardest sermon that I've written in like two years. It's probably been the hardest time I've ever had. Um, in the last couple of years. And I don't know if it was my own spiritual dullness, um, because there's nothing wrong with the Bible, there's nothing wrong with God, there's a lot wrong with me, and there's a lot wrong with you. Um, So I don't know if it was my own spiritual dullness, or my own mental dullness, my own, I don't don't know what it was. Um, If it was some kind of spiritual attack from Satan trying to keep me from preaching on this subject, we definitely believe in, in the spiritual things that the Bible talks about. Could have been that, I don't know. Why I couldn't get a sermon out, but that being said, I am convinced that this sermon must be important. Right? If it was if it was a truth that I had a hard time mining out, then it's probably a truth that we have neglected to think about as a church. Or if it was some kind of spiritual attack from Satan, then definitely we need to hear this for certain. Um, so please be attentive because I think there's something that someone here, I know I needed to hear a good bit of this stuff. This is very convicting stuff we're going to be looking at. Um, But anyway, this evening we're going to be looking in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. What we're looking at is uh, the golden calf incident, right? I didn't know what else to call it. It sounds like a really crappy subtitle for a book, doesn't it? It It's terrible. The golden calf incident of Exodus. Um, And what we're going to do this evening is we're going to consider the idolatry of the people of Israel in their worship of the golden calf. And as we look at their idolatry, I, I pray that God would reveal to us what our hidden idols are. Because you have them. I have them. Whatever our hidden idols are, I pray that God will bring that to light. That's my prayer this week. And that we might go from here and pursue God with complete devotion in further gratitude than what we came in here with to Jesus Christ crucified in our place for our sin of placing something before God. Because indeed we do deserve to go to hell for our idolatry. Right, so just a little bit of a recap So in Exodus, we've seen that God has called Israel out of Egypt, out of their slavery. He's raised up Moses as a prophet to lead them. 
Um, and he's promised Canaan to them. He said, I, I'm going to give you this promised land that I promised your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's Israel, obviously, like the land, nation, place of Israel. He said, I'm going to give you Canaan. And then after God promises that to them, reaffirms the covenant that he made with Abraham uh, to them, God has went on to display his complete and utter supremacy to every so-called God of Egypt. And he did that in the plagues. Every plague has a corresponding God that Yahweh, that's God's formal name in the Bible. Every plague has a corresponding God that Yahweh was making fun of and belittling, which is pretty awesome. Um, So he's shown his complete supremacy to all other so-called gods. He's also proven that he is a worthy savior and protector of his people. He's parted the Red Sea for his people and led them out. And now we come to a place, the back end of Exodus. Um, God says, okay, guys, we're going to take a break here for a minute. We're going to stop at Mount Sinai. And we looked at last week. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you my law. And then we're going to go on towards the promised land once you have the laws about the tabernacle and how you're supposed to worship me and how you're supposed to live. So, Israel is in the wilderness. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses is, at this point in the story, Exodus 32, he is up on the mountain receiving the law. Right? Uh, As far as I can tell, he's come down once in chapter 24, reaffirmed the covenant with them, and then went back up to receive more law. And Moses, as he's up on this mountain, he's been up there for a few weeks, less than six weeks. Keep that in mind, how quickly things go badly or how quickly things go bad for Israel. It's like 39 days, a lot of people think. It's been about 39 days Moses has been up on Mount Sinai receiving law, and Israel begins to get restless. Right? And I can't stress how badly that they want to continue on towards Canaan. Right? They just got out of slavery. They want Canaan really, 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 really badly. Keep that in your mind. They, they want to go to Canaan, and this text is going to show us just how badly. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. Father, please send your Holy Spirit to reveal to us our sin and our idolatry. God, use my weak words to do a mighty thing because, God, this is your church. These are your people. It's going to be an act, an act of God that's going to do anything for us. So, God, please do something mighty. Point us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. We're going to start there, and then we're going to jump off into something else. So when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, Just so you know, we're not going to get into this too much. That play means they rose up to commit some kind of uh, ritual orgy, kind of a sexual immorality thing. So this is not good. They weren't, you know, playing tag with each other exactly. Um, 
Mm-mm. Um, all right, so kind of recap this, what we just saw. That was a stupid joke. I'm sorry, guys. Um, and if there's anything, if anyone's kids in here, good luck explaining that one to them later. Um, so the people, right, the people go to Aaron and they say this, right? And it's not just, it's probably not the entire nation of Israel. It's probably the representatives of the people, which would have still been a, a few thousand representatives of the whole nation of Israel. They go up to Aaron, who's second in command. It's Moses' brother. And they say, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, has been gone for a long time. And we don't know if he's coming back. We don't know if he's dead or if he's abandoned us. And I just want to take a second, because maybe you skimmed over it, because I did for days. They credit Moses with their deliverance from, Israel, or from Egypt. It's always been Yahweh, right? The Lord. The Lord has brought us out of Egypt. The Lord has done a great thing for us. And now they say, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt. So they credit Moses and not God for their freedom. And then they say, since we don't know if this Moses who has led us is coming back, make gods for us in order to lead us. Right? The, text is, the text actually says, make gods to go before us. Right Now the Lord has been told to go before Israel in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and he's leading them. Right, So essentially what they're saying in some translations, not the one that we use, but some translations say, make us gods to lead us. So just taking those two things, right, considering that they have discredited the true God for their freedom, and now they are asking for a new God to lead them, to go before them. I think it's a fair thing to, to assume that Israel has gone apostate. They have turned from the living God to go their own way and pursue their own things. They've turned their back on him entirely. Now, what God are they now wanting to follow? We're not entirely sure. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 39 through 40. Um, it's part of the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. As they're getting ready to stone Stephen, he's, um, he's giving a short history of the nation of Israel. And in, and in chapter 7, verses 39 and 40, he says that whenever the people went up to Aaron to ask for gods, he said, in their heart, they turned towards Egypt. Right? So I think that they're turning back towards one of the gods of Egypt is what they have in mind. Some scholars think that this is the Egyptian god Apis. Um, that's the bull god of Egypt, which is also a pun, a bull god, because it's not god. Um, and this is the... Yeah, see, some of you got that. It's cool. Um, but this is probably... Like, this may be Apis, the uh, bull god of Egypt. He's the god of fertility and power. We're not sure. We're not sure what god they had in mind whenever they did this. Um, but regardless of what god they turned to, They have turned away from the one true God and they have turned towards a false one. Which is like a straight up violation of the first two commandments. Have no gods before me. Literally no gods in front of my face. right? No gods before my face. And make for yourselves no idols. And they just, just eight chapters earlier said, whatever that Yahweh tells us to do, we'll do it. And then they go break the first two things that he tells them to do. Out of the Ten Commandments. The first two things. So they've gone apostate, they're, they're, following, they're wanting another God to lead them. Why? That's my question, right? So like, it's, I don't just want to read the Bible like a newspaper. I want to know, okay, so they did that, but why did they do it? And I'll be straight with you, I'm inferring a little bit here, right? And I just want to be honest with you. This is what I can gather. They want to go on to Canaan. They want to go to Canaan. They're impatient for Moses to return with the law. Right, Moses. The, the text, verse one, says Moses delayed in coming down, so they think that Moses is taking too long. And then they retort and say, "We want new gods to lead us. Lead them where? Well, Yahweh has been taking them towards Canaan, so I think that that's where they're wanting led to, and they're wanting something to take them where they want to go. Canaan is the most important thing to these Israelites. 
The land that God had promised them is the most important thing to them. God himself is not important to them. Canaan is. The land is. If God were the most important thing in their lives, they would have waited for his law. They would have waited for Moses to come down and tell them, this is what Yahweh has said. And furthermore, if Moses, would have, if Moses had died, or Moses had um, abandoned them, they would have waited for Yahweh to raise up another prophet. If they really wanted God, they would have waited on Him. But they proved that they don't. I think Israel was absolutely convinced that Canaan was going to complete them. I really do. I think that they thought that getting this land, going to this place, was going to give them supreme joy, that they were going to finally have an identity as a nation with an actual physical place to stay, and that it was going to give them fulfillment above all things to inherit this land. That was their main driver. That was their biggest desire. So they acted accordingly, right? They they pursued the thing that they desired the most. That's what human beings do, by the way. Like whenever we sin, in that moment we're saying, I desire this sin over obedience to God. We always pursue our greatest desire, and their desire was to be led to Canaan. And what's sad is they missed the point that you can see if you'll read, read, read the book of Exodus, that it was God's presence with them in the land that was going to give them joy and fulfillment. And all of the deep yearnings of their heart, it was the presence of God with them, dwelling with them in the tabernacle. But they were convinced in and of themselves that it was the land that was going to fulfill them. So they desired Canaan over the God who made Canaan. Think about how ludicrous that that is for a second. They desired the land over the God who spoke the land into existence. They wanted the gift more than they wanted the giver. And so Israel went after another God because they had made something other than the true God their hearts desire. That is idolatry. That is idolatry, and that's the first bit that we need to address. What is idolatry? It's an old word. You usually only hear it in church, or you hear it whenever people are, you know, so-and-so is my idol, or whatever. What is idolatry? I hunted around, found a pretty good answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question 95. Just look up the Heidelberg Catechism. There's some good stuff in there. A lot of questions and answers. This is how people used to teach their children stuff. Uh, But question 95, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Pretty good definition. I can't really do a whole lot better than that. It's trusting something other than God, or in addition to God, for salvation, for your joy, for your fulfillment, for your identity, for for the completion of who you are as a person. It's trusting in something other than God for that. Tim Keller puts it a little bit more simply, a little bit more in modern terms. Um, it's a, he, has, he has a book called Counterfeit Gods. You guys should go check that out. It's very good. Uh, Keller said this, It's making something, even a good thing, the ultimate thing in your life. That is idolatry. Something that is not God, even a good thing. Right? Even something like family or ministry. You know, or, or pursuing a job, right? It can be a good thing. It doesn't just have to be, you know, porn or booze or something like that. It can be a good thing, and that thing become your God. So whatever the ultimate thing, and here's how this works out. Here's why that, that thing becomes your God, that ultimate thing. Because whatever the ultimate person or thing is in your life, you will ascribe ultimate worth to. That's what worship is, is the ascribing of worth to something. So you will put ultimate worth on this thing or person that is not God, and then you will pursue it completely 
And that thing becomes your God, your functional God or your functional Savior, some people call it. So whatever our passion is, whatever we throw ourselves completely into is indeed our God. So an idol can literally be anything but God. Even the things that God can give us. Some people make heaven into an idol where they just want to go to heaven to be with their dead relatives and they don't really want to go there to be in the presence of God. It can even be something that God gives. If it's not God himself. So everyone has idols. Like everybody has idols. Or, I'm sorry, probably everyone has idols, but everyone for certain has potential idols in their lives. Everyone at least has potential items. And they're probably hidden to you, right? Because I doubt you you have like a statue of a cow in your living room or something like that. It's not usually that noticeable. A little bit harder to see. Um, So what I want to do, I kind of didn't know what to do at this point. Because I could give you myriad examples of idolatry and still probably not hit everyone in this room. Right? And it'd be almost like an exercise in futility. So what, what I want to do is I want to pose some questions to you guys. Full disclosure, stole them from a pastor named Mark Driscoll. Stole them from an old sermon from this guy. I want to pose some questions to you guys that may help you identify potential idols in your life and see them for what they actually are. And hear me. You can look at these nine questions that I'm going to ask you and lie to yourself. Because I did when I read them. First time I read them. Oh, God, it's God, it's God. And no. This is going to take you being very honest with yourself. Search your heart. Humble yourselves before God. Because God already knows what's in your heart. You can't trick Him. So be honest with yourself as you, as you answer these questions to yourself. Trying to find out what a potential idol in your life is. Question one. What are you most afraid of? What's your biggest fear? Is it losing your health? Is it dying alone? The death of a spouse? Is your greatest fear the loss of a child? Losing friends for some reason? Losing money? What's your biggest fear? Two, what do you long for? Why do you get up in the morning? What drives you? What drives your decisions? What do you long for? Three, where do you run to for comfort? This is a big one. When, when you have had a bad, bad day, what do you go to? Do you go to alcohol? Do you go to food? Do you go to pornography? Do you go to some individual, like some person? Do you go to bed to try to sleep away the bad day? What do you go to for comfort? Four, what do you complain about the most? Like, if you're complaining about something, it means you're frustrated because something didn't go the way that you had hoped. And the more frustrated you are shows how much you value that thing. So whatever frustrates you proves that you put a good bit of value on it. So what do you complain about the most? Five, how do you, rev- how do you explain yourselves to others? And what I mean by that is, how do you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Dave. I'm a pastor. That could be an idol. Maybe not. Maybe not. But that could be an idol. I know that that's ministry I found out this week. Tends to be an idol for me. Well, how do, you, how do you introduce yourself to people that may reveal what you really think your identity is? Instead of, if you're a Christian, being a child of God who bought you with the blood of his son, how do you identify yourself? Number six, what has caused you to be angry at God? This is deep. Why, what has made you angry with God in the past? The fact that you don't have children, the fact that you lost a job, the fact that you're however old and still single, 
that someone slandered your reputation and now people think less of you? When's the last time you were angry with God and said, why would you do this? Seven, what do you want more than anything? Right? Think like genie in a bottle scenario, right? Can you, you can have anything you want, period. It's yours right now. Is it to know God more? Is it to be used by God? Is it to, it's, is it to become more like Christ? What is, it? is it not that? Genie in a bottle moment. Eight, what do you make the biggest sacrifices for? Right? What, do you, what do you give your time to? What do you put your money into? What do you put all of your energy into? Big one for me, where does your thought life drift to? Like in the middle, of, like you wake up, what do you immediately think about? Right, you're driving down the road, where does your mind drift towards? What are you thinking about all the time? Is it business? Is it, I don't know. What do you treasure the most, number nine? What do you treasure the most? The one person or thing that if taken away would ruin your life. What do you treasure more than anything? Sum all that up with this. Whatever drives you, right? Whatever, what, what, whatever causes you to make the decisions that you do and makes you orient your life a certain way, whatever drives you, whatever makes you the happiest, or whatever you're convinced is going to make you the happiest, whatever gives you your identity as a person, that is your God. That is your God. For the Israelites, the desire of Canaan Right in the wealth and prosperity and comfort that they thought would come with it, that was their God. Yahweh, the Lord, was just a means for an end. He was just a means to an end for many of them. As long as he's leading us toward this thing that we want, then we'll follow him. Always stop at Mount Sinai. Looks like it's time to follow something else to get me what I want. How many times is that us? I want this relationship. Well, that person's an unbeliever. And I know what the Bible says about that, that I ought to stay with believers only. But I want to follow this God instead of the God on this one because I really want this relationship or whatever it might be. We become willing to sin. The golden calf wasn't really their God. (laughs) Again, the calf was just a means to an end. They thought that this god Apis or whoever it was was going to lead them to what they wanted. And that made me think of this, and this wasn't my own thought. It struck me. They were using God, at least in the beginning, I would argue many of them, not all of them, because there were some who didn't participate in this idolatry, but many of them, I think, were just using the Lord God as a means to an end. So make no mistake, guys, hear me on this, especially those of you who have been going to church for a long time. You can come to church, you can read the Bible, you can pray, you can read the other books, you can go to the conferences, you can sing the songs, you can be in a small group and still worship an idol. God help us if we can't see this. Are you pursuing God himself in those things and knowing him? And seeing yourself for what you are and seeing him as beautiful and you just want him. Are you pursuing him in those things? Or are you trying to manipulate him into giving you something? Let's be honest. Some people think that they can, by their obedience, twist the arm of God into giving them the true desire of their heart. So they use the Lord God as a means to an end. If I do X, God will give me Y because I believe that God rewards me for my obedience. When you ignore the fact that Jesus Christ says that after we do everything that God tells us to do, we should consider ourselves unprofitable servants who have just done what we were supposed to do anyway. Everything God gives us is grace. 
And yet we stupidly think that just like we can, like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like, we'll do a favor for our friends, now they owe us one. We think we can do that with God. And we use Him as a means to an end. And then we get mad at Him whenever we don't get the thing that we wanted. And then we'll turn to another God. Because God wasn't our God. If you come to Jesus Christ for anything other than Jesus Christ and the salvation that He offers you in order that you might know Him and enjoy Him forever, then He is not your God. Whatever you're trying to get from Him is your God. Uh, Christian rapper Shylin says, if you come to God for money, then He's not your God. Money is. Remember that. Jesus is the means and the end. We come to Jesus in order to get him. Think about this. You ever wondered why Jesus saves us from hell? So that we can be with him forever. Heaven is not sitting like in like your gold mansion or whatever with all of your dead relatives. It's being in the presence of the one who saved you. That's why he saves us from hell, that we might know him and enjoy him and spend eternity with him. That's why he saves us from hell, so that we can know him, so that we get him. He is the means and the end. He did it himself so that we could have himself. He promises to be all satisfying in the joy of our lives and to give us the true identity and everything that we actually yearn for in our hearts. He promises to be sufficient and to give us what we actually need and what we actually need is more of him. So now that we've considered idolatry for a minute, and we've identified potential idols in our hearts, the next question that the text is going to answer for us is, what does God think about idolatry then? Let's read 32, 7-10. And the Lord said to Moses, so they're up on the mountain, right? They're up on the mountain. Moses doesn't know what's going on. The people of Israel have abandoned God, but God still sees. Don't forget that. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's, that's heavy. God, because of Israel's idolatry, God actually just disowned the people there. He's called them his people all throughout Exodus. He says, Moses, hey, your people have done a horrible thing. They're not mine anymore. They've turned from me. They're yours now. He disowns them for this idolatry. And then he says they've corrupted themselves. And if I've done any good job as a preacher at all, we know that God is holy and that God refuses to be around corruption. He says they're not my people. They've corrupted themselves. I want nothing to do with them. And his wrath burns against them because of their idolatry. And God says, let me alone, Moses. Right? So he's saying, if you don't intercede for them, then I'm going to kill the entire nation. And I'll start over and make a great nation out of you, Moses. Moses, you haven't engaged in the idolatry. I'll spare you and start over with you. I'm going to kill everyone else in this nation. Think about that. Like, it is an understatement to say that God doesn't like idolatry. 
Think about, he, think about all, uh, not that anything is like hard for the Lord to do, but think of like all the time that God just spent like with the miracles and the plagues and leading them out and destroying the Egyptian army and all this stuff. And he says, I will kill everybody in this nation for what they've done. Clearly, God hates idolatry. It's not just a mere displeasure. He hates it. But why does he hate it so much? Why does God hate idolatry? What's the harm in pursuing something more than we would pursue God? I got, I got two, two reasons, I think. One, God hates idolatry because he loves us. And that sounds really strange. But I think God hates idolatry because he loves us. The Bible tells us all over that idols are worthless. They can't save. They can't hear. They can't do anything for the people. They won't satisfy. And then conversely, the Bible tells us over and over again, like, ad infinitum, like, God satisfies God is, is, is the true like, thing that can give us what we're looking for. I don't know how to say it. God hates idolatry because he loves us, because he knows idols won't satisfy us. He knows that idols will ultimately destroy us because they promise things to us that they cannot give us. For example, and you've heard this kind of story, it's all over like our, our books and movies and stuff like that. The guy who spends his whole life chasing his dream job and tracing after wealth, and then he gets older and he has the nice stuff and he has the nice clothes and he has the nice car and he's got the big bank account that he wants, and then he thinks to himself, there must be more. This is not what I thought it would be. Some of the most miserable people that we know of are the richest people that we know of. Because that God couldn't satisfy them. Or another example, you know, and I've done this. You pursue that relationship until you finally get it. You want that girl, you want that guy, and you want them more than you want to breathe, and you're willing to sin in order to please them or whatever, and you think that this person is going to give me value. This person is going to complete me and give me a real identity, and I'm going to experience love that like knows no bounds and knows no end, right? Like Jerry Maguire, you complete me, right? I think it's Jerry Maguire. It's probably out of my element on this one. We think that the, this person is going to complete me and give me everything that I wanted. And then what does that person do? They let you down. They disappoint you. They sin against you. They might cheat on you. Whatever. They hurt you in some way. And you find out real quick and in a hard way, this relationship is not what I thought it would be. Or you can have a great relationship and then find out, man, this still isn't as satisfying as I thought it would be. You get married. And you find out, man, this isn't what I thought it would be. Not that marriage is bad or anything. The stuff that we idolize will always leave us wanting more. J.D. Rockefeller, right? One, like the richest, like history says, he was the richest man alive at that point. One of the richest men of all time. I think he was worth like, like $356 billion or something like that, I, I read. Right? Like Bill Gates rich, like Bill Gates money. And this guy, after like he's legit the richest man in the world at this time, someone went up to him and said, Mr. Rockefeller, you have everything. What are you after in life? And he said, just a little more. A man worth $356 billion says, I just want a little bit more. Which is kind of funny. Like, we laugh at that. We're like, oh, he's being a smart aleck. 
But he actually lived his life as if he just wanted a little bit more. He kept trying to make more. He kept doing more to make more money. And it wasn't enough for him. There are endless accounts of people striving their whole lives for something and then realizing that it didn't satisfy them. And those are the people who actually attained it. (laughs) J.D. Rockefeller. Think about those of us who wrestle with the sin of greed. J.D. Rockefeller says it's not enough. (laughs) I'm never going to get that. Whatever your idol is, you can chase it down. And even if you get it, you'll find out that it won't satisfy. But how much worse is it for those who don't even get it? They spend their whole life chasing after something. And if they were to get it, to find out that it doesn't do anything for them, ultimately. God hates idolatry because He knows that when we put God-sized expectations on something that is not Him, that we will chase it and never ever have peace. Or we'll get it, and then whenever it fails us, we will be shattered. Because when your God fails you, you have no hope or foundation. That's why he's constantly imploring us, look to me and me alone because I can't fail. I am not finite. I am eternal. I am all-powerful. I love you beyond any other love. So God hates idolatry because he does not want that for us. But maybe you're like me and you're thinking, okay, so God hates idolatry because he loves us. Why does he punish the idolater then if he loves them so much? That's part two, and this one's way heavy. God hates idolatry because it attempts to rob him of glory. God will not tolerate that. He says all over the Bible, I share my glory with no one. You would have no gods before me. No gods in competition with me. And to violate God's laws to incur the wrath of God. So as we're trying to attempt to rob God of glory, what do I mean by that? We are ascribing ultimate worth to something that doesn't have it which is ludicrous. This person is worth more than the God who made this person. Ludicrous. We're saying that this thing or person has supremacy to the God who made that thing or person. Makes no sense. Furthermore, idolatry calls God a liar. God says, only I can satisfy what you're really after. Only I can give you true fulfillment and a true identity. Only I can, can never fail you. And we say, I don't believe you. You're a liar. This thing is better. So I'm going to go after it. And as we declare God a liar, we blaspheme the worth of God because, because we put a greater value on something that God gave, created, or instituted. What's worth more, Steve Jobs or the iPhone? Or if you were still alive. It would be Steve Jobs, of course. That's a human example. How stupid are we that we would value the creation over the creator? Of course God hates and will punish idolatry. Consider the things that you're saying about him. You're saying that everything true about him is false. Think he's going to take that lightly? The one who gave you the breath to say those things? We deserve to go to hell for our idolatry. I asked asked someone earlier today, Have you ever really considered that? That we actually deserve to burn in hell for our idolatry? Or do we tend to just look at it as like, yeah, I mean, I got a couple of things that I might pursue more than God. I don't know. I need to work on that a little bit, maybe. 
We actually deserve to go to hell for this. Galatians chapter 5, among other things, says idolaters will not inherit the kingdom. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 tells us to put away idolatry because the wrath of God is coming against idolaters. Romans chapter 1 says that the the wrath of God has been revealed against the unrighteousness of men. And what is that unrighteousness? Paul goes on to say they worship the creation instead of the creator and that that is actually the charge that God is going to bring against every sinner in judgment. You wouldn't worship me, but you'd worship anything else. Like, really let that sink in. This is not a minor sin. This is not a lesser sin. This is actually one of the most talked about sins in the Bible. If I were to read nothing but passages on idolatry, all I would have done is read to you for an hour this evening. And I probably wouldn't have even got through all of them. This is huge. So every time we pursue something over God, we deserve to be cast away from God. And really that makes sense because he would be giving us what we wanted, not him. We didn't want him. He says, fine, you won't get me forever. That makes sense. Idolatry is deadly serious. Jesus Christ himself says you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. Right? Take money out and put whatever that idol is that you've identified in yourself. He says, you can't serve both of us. Jesus Christ himself also said, if any man would come after me, he must love me so much more than he loves anyone or anything else that his love for those other things appears to be hate. If you don't do that, you can't follow me. God demands that we worship and seek after him above everything, and we all have miserably failed at this. What hope can we have? Just like Israel, we deserve eternal destruction under the wrath of God. But what happens next in the account? Let's, let's see this. Exodus 32, 11-14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I'm not going to go into how Moses spoke to the Lord here. Because at the most basic level, this is all that I want us to see from that. At the most basic level, we see then, just in that passage we read, that God relents from destroying Israel. Why? Because Moses interceded for them. (laughs) Moses pleads to God for their lives and becomes a mediator between God and Israel. Now hear me, the the back end of chapter 32 will tell us that Moses cannot make atonement for these people. But in his mediation, he points us to the true mediator, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ who he says himself his food and his drink was to do the will of his Father. That everything he did, every miracle he performed, every word he spoke, everything was in submission to the Father. He ran hard after his Father. He says, I love the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I love the Father more than anything. I've come here to do what he wants me to do. Even die on a cross if that's what my Father wants me to do because I desire him above all things. That Jesus offered himself up on a cross and satisfied God's wrath for our idolatry. That's amazing. And now for those of us who trust in Christ, the Bible we just read, Jesus stands before God's throne pleading mercy for us whenever we sin. Just like Moses did for Israel. 1 John chapter 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, that's idolatry. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. My favorite word in the Bible, propitiation. Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath for all who would believe. The wrath for idolatry that we deserve. And He is now our advocate before the God that we've sinned against. Advocate's like a lawyer. Mediator stands between Christ as our advocate is literally our only hope to avoid the penalty that we deserve. Because only Christ can stand before God on our behalf. Because he is the only one that has never sinned, unlike us. It's like Moses didn't commit the idolatry, he stood on behalf of the people. In the same way, Christ is the only one who can rightfully stand before God and plead mercy for us. We have no hope but in his mediation. So we must run to Christ, confessing our sins and wanting rid of the vain idols and desiring Jesus as our only Lord, our only God, and our only Savior. Outside of this only mediator between God and man, we have no hope. He must stand on our behalf or we will perish for our idolatry. So please don't take this lightly. See what a grievous sin your pursuit of the creation has been and then put your hope for everything in the Savior. Whatever you were hoping for in that relationship or that job or your schoolwork or whatever, whatever hope that you had in that, put it in Christ. Because without a mediator, Israel would have perished and God has not changed. Without a mediator, our fate will be the same as Israel's would have been. I don't, I can't, I can't do this for you guys. Can you see how much that you need Jesus? We commit idolatry too much to ever think that we could go without him. I'm talking to Christians and non-believers, same. Do you see how much that you need him? Our desires often run from God. We are hopeless apart from the mediation of Jesus. We can never hope for life apart from Him because we sin too much. Trust Him. So maybe you're thinking, especially if you're a Christian, all right, how am I supposed to kill the idols in my life? 
I know that I should. I see that it's a problem. I see that God hates it. I see that I need to look to Christ, but I also need to get these idols out of my life. How do I do that? That's the practical question for certain. The answer is not to focus on desiring the idol less. This is really counterintuitive. The answer is not to focus on the idol less. The answer is to love Christ more. Puritans said this, more than one, I believe, can't remember who it was, that to expel one desire in our heart, we must replace it with a stronger one. You can't just switch desires. You have to replace it with a stronger desire. All sin and all idolatry really is us saying, I love this thing or this person more than Jesus right now. So we need to learn to grow. We need to grow to love Christ more than all other things. How are we going to do that? I think we grow to love Christ more by reflecting on the love that he had for us first. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Verses 9 and 10 of that chapter says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Think about that. Really get a hold of that and see if anything else can really hold a contest against that God. Think on that love that He's shown for us. Not that we, that's killer, but not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. In spite of the idolatry, see if those idols don't melt away. As we appreciate the gospel more, Right, as we come to realize the love that God has for us, sinners, idolaters, as we, as we understand that more, the more I'm convinced that we will desire to know and pursue that God above all other pursuits. Because who wouldn't want to pursue the one who loves them the most and gave himself up for them? So practically, get in the scripture and see the love of God for you. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Look to the scriptures and see God's love for you. And then pray for the desire to desire God above all. Pray for that. You can't change your heart. You can't change what kind of food you like. You can't change your heart. Only God can do that. And God does that through prayer and the Holy Spirit working alongside the Word. That's how He changes us. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans chapter 12. Get in the Word and pray that God would do a work to make you desire Him more. Trust and go hard after Christ. Acknowledge that your idols are impotent and useless. And look to Jesus who is the true God and giver of true life and fulfillment. I'll leave you guys with this passage. It's 1 John. Read 1 John. There's so much stuff in here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. This is how John ends his letter to them. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who gives us the perfect mediator and the perfect one who intercedes on our behalf. 
Apart from Christ, we have no hope, and yet you offer Christ to us freely, saying, just turn from our idolatry and turn to Jesus. Trust Him that Christ has been perfect on our behalf, that Christ has satisfied your wrath on our behalf. Father, help us to focus on the love that you've given us in Christ and be driven away from our idols and towards you. God, let every false hope that we have melt compared to the hope that we have in you. God, help us to actually grasp the gospel. God, make it not just a list of things for us to check off that we believe in our head, but God, let it be something that consumes our soul. Protect us from our own hearts. Protect us from our idolatry. God, above all things, thank you for saving us through Christ, the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.